Jesus had some super important things to say about the Holy Spirit. Let's keep going with Wayne as he gets into this next message, part two. We are exploring the person and the work of the Holy Spirit according to Jesus. The verses that we're using as our foundational verses are all red letter verses. Jesus said the parts that we are going to be exploring. And last week, we identified that the ministry of the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, is fivefold. That the Holy Spirit convicts, He helps, He guides, He teaches, and He empowers. And last week, we looked at how He convicts. Jesus said, and He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And tonight, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit as the helper. So turn in your Bibles to John 14. <clears throat> John 14, we'll begin reading with verse 15. John 14... 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before we dive in too deep, I want us to pause just a moment at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is an important verse for us to consider because what comes after this is contingent upon this phrase. This is a qualifying verse for, and I will ask the Father, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father. This may be a little controversial, but, uh, you know, at 72 years of age, I, I don't care a whole lot anymore. You know, it's more important to say what I believe God's word says than it is to uh, say what might tickle some ears. But in that verse we call the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, and it says, Go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey, baptizing them, so on and so forth. And then the very last phrase of that is, and lo, I will be with you always, even into the end of the age. I believe that's a conditional statement. I believe that if individuals and churches abdicate making the Great Commission their reason for being, they also abdicate God's presence for their ministry. Because that's Jesus' last command to us. Go ye therefore and make disciples. And if you will go and you'll, you'll follow my heart, I will be with you. 
But we have churches today that have abdicated their responsibility to be great commission churches. And in many of those places, Ichabod has been written over the door, which means the Spirit of God has departed because they have, they have thrown overboard the first part of go ye therefore and make disciples teaching them to obey. And so this is a statement like that. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and then I will. Are you with me? Okay, hang on here for just a little bit. You see, according to Jesus, there's only one true test of our love for him, and that is obedience. Oswald Chambers, who I'll only quote twice tonight, so be easy on me, said, Our Lord never insists on obedience. He tells us very emphatically what we ought to do, but he never makes us do it. You see, my brothers and sisters, it's our love for Jesus that motivates us to obey him. If you love me, you'll obey me, Jesus says. It's our love. For, that's our motivating. You know, he says, he, he, never tells, he never tells us, he tells us what we need to do, but he never makes us do it. And it's our love for him that stimulates us to do it. One of the greatest evidences that one has truly been born again is a consuming and growing desire to please our Lord. And Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. And from Jesus' side of the equation, it's just that simple. If you love me, you'll obey me. You see, Jesus never allows this love to dissolve into sentiment or emotion. This love is displayed by action. This love is not rooted in emotion. It's not rooted in how I feel. It's rooted in what I do. See, Jesus knows the hearts of men and women all too well. He knows that there are those who profess their love in words but then at the same time break the hearts of those that they claim to love. There are husbands who say that they love their wives and wives who say that they love their husbands, but they continually wound one another through thoughtless and unkind words and deeds. And I've been doing marital counseling, both premarital and post, for 47 years. And it's amazing how cruel husbands and wives can be to one another even those that make a claim to faith, sadly to say. There are brothers and sisters in Christ who verbally profess their love for one another only to demean and slander another when they're not in their presence. I've often said this, if you've got something to say about your brother and sister in Christ, if they're not in your presence, it better be positive. If you want to say anything negative, make sure they're in the room and you can talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. I told you I can get in trouble. <laughs> and this type of love is not an easy thing. This type of love can never be rooted in emotion. And that's why in the traditional wedding vows, and I've done a few hundred of them, 
the bride and the groom are not required to be in love with their spouse. They are required to love their spouse. There's nothing in the ceremony that says, are you in love? I mean, we hope they are, whatever that means. But the wedding vow does not say and require them to be in love with one another. It requires them to love one another. And that's totally different. The two are totally different. I cannot choose how I feel, but I can choose how I act. You see, real love in a marriage is evidenced by a commitment to marriage vows. And it's a commitment when it's convenient and when it's not. It's a commitment when, it's, when it feels good and when it doesn't. And being married for 54 years, we've known some ups and downs. There's days you're just so happy to be married and have that person. And there's other days you just like to ride off into the sunset. And what keeps us from doing that is a commitment that was made before God that we would love one another. And it's the same in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The measure of our devotion to, the, to Jesus is not our giving. It's not our church attendance. It's not our Bible reading. And it's not our prayer life. Our love for Jesus is displayed in our obedience when it is convenient and when it is not and when it feels good and when it doesn't. So in essence, here's what Jesus says. If you love me, you will obey me. And if you will not obey me, you do not love me. You know, it'd be a lot easier if he counted the the church attendance and the tithing and the how many chapters of scripture I read and how much I pray, but that's not it. Jesus said, these things, I mean, hopefully those are all part of our life because we've fallen in love with Jesus. But he says, bottom line, if you love me, you will obey me. And if you will not obey me, you do not love me. So, what does loving Jesus look like? Are you ready? Love one another, forgive one another. Consider one another is more important than yourself. Turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. Never let the sun go down on your anger. That's all. And when a husband loves his wife, he's loving Jesus. When a wife respects her husband, She's loving Jesus. You know, when we're called, I'm called to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Sandy's called to respect me as she would respect Christ. Before our obedience to that is ever a benefit to either one of us, it's either obedience or disobedience to Jesus. I've had too many people, well, I'll respect him when he, that's not what the verse says. It says irrespective, respect him. Well, I'll love her when she, no, 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 it's, you love her. I don't care if she's the wicked witch of the West. You love her. 
And that's obedience to Jesus. When children obey their parents, they're loving Jesus. When you love your neighbor as you love yourself, you're loving Jesus. When you run your business in a Christ-like manner, you're, you're loving Jesus. When you do your work at your job for the glory of God, you're loving Jesus. When you help clothe the naked and feed the poor, you're loving Jesus. When I read the Christian code of conduct, which is called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5, 6, and 7, when I read it and take it to heart, I find myself throwing up my hands and I say, I can't do this. And that is precisely the response that the Sermon on the Mount was meant to elicit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The very first thing out of the gate is blessed are the poor in spirit. And the poor in spirit in Jesus' day, uh, the poor then in the Aramaic were called the Anawim. And the Anawim were subsistence livers. Jesus told a parable about a guy who went to the city square and got some people to work in his vineyard. Then he went back at noon and hired some more. Then he went back at three o'clock in the afternoon and hired some more. And we've got some Anawim in our own community here. We've got guys who are day workers that wait at a place in town and they're waiting for contractors or somebody to come and pick them up and give them a day's, a day's work. And whenever I drive by that lot at noon and I see some of them still standing there, I know it's going to be a bad day. They are the Anawim. They are totally and absolutely dependent upon the grace and the mercy and the compassion of another. My son Travis, when he had his construction company here in town, he had one of those gentlemen working for him for two or three days. And he says, well, I'll be down to pick you up tomorrow. He says, you know, I've got a friend, Jose, and he hasn't had any work all week long. Could you, could he take my place tomorrow? I've had work for three days. He said, could you do? And so where does Jesus start the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the Anoim. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand that they are spiritual paupers and they will admit it. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Coming as the poor in spirit is the open door to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. I have nothing to offer God. I am the Anawim. I have nothing to offer him. I can bring nothing to the table. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who will confess their spiritual bankruptcy. Because if they will, the kingdom of God belongs to them. Now, thankfully, Jesus did not leave us to struggle with the Christian life alone. He never called us to live this life in Christ in our own power. He said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. God's plan has never involved us living for him in our own strength, because attempting to live for Jesus in our own strength will weigh us down with frustration and discouragement and depression and feelings of failure and guilt. Good. 
We were never meant to be. We, we do not have the makeup spiritually, emotionally, or physically to carry that which Christ has carried for us and wants to continue to carry for us through the indwelling Holy Spirit, our helper. Again, I read this Sermon on the Mount and I say, I can't do this. I don't know if, has that, have those passages ever elicited that in you? I mean, it's so easy to love your enemy, right? It's so easy to turn the other cheek. It's so easy when we come to bring our offering to the Lord and remember that somebody has something in their heart against us that we leave our offering and go be reconciled before we come again. Easy peasy, right? Not without the Holy Spirit. The only way we walk out that is through Him. Through the power of the Helper. That's why Jesus said this. Want to read it out loud together? Apart from me, you can do nothing. John, I want you to turn to Mavis and say, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And then, John, you can turn to the person beside you. Tell everybody, yeah, without him, you can do nothing. And I want you to know, Jesus meant this. He means it. Without me, and, and we can say, oh, well, I can do a whole bunch of things. Not that it has any eternal significance. Our life in Christ will not bear anything eternally that will go with us into eternity without him. Apart from him, I can do nothing that has a lasting result. And I don't care how many sermons I've preached. I don't know how many, I don't care how much money I've given. It doesn't matter how many visits I made to the hospital or to the jail. Apart from him, I can do nothing. And so Jesus said this, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Because you are the poor in spirit. I'm going to ask my father to give you a helper. The Greek word for helper is parakletos. And it means one called alongside to help in times of trouble or need. Now, the King James translates Paracletos as comforter, which is not a great translation. It's not the best translation of this word. Though the Holy Spirit may bring comfort for us in times of grief, he does so much more than that. He comes as a helper. One who comes alongside to help us in our time of need. Now, those of you who have known me for the last 33 years know that uh, I'm a pitcher person. Being raised on a ranch and a farm, a lot of my analogies have animals and tractors and trucks in them. You know, I, I, I take the life in through pitchers and the concept of parakletos was made real to me when I was in the Navy. Now, when Navy ships go to sea, they're not like you and me going to Reno and back. They don't go out so far and then have to run back to the gas station 
and gas up. It'd be a pretty poor fleet if they had to turn around every time they ran out of gas and food and supplies. So they do it at sea. And this, this ship right here, the, the helicopter carrier, that's the USS Iwo Jima. I spent some time on the Iwo Jima. They're the ones that picked up Apollo 13, you know, the, the successful failure when it came back to Earth. And I spent some time on the Iwo Jima and was part and got to experience. And what we have here to the right side of the Iwo Jima is a supply ship. And this supply ship has food and all sorts of stuff, plus gasoline and JP-5 to run the helicopters and whatnot. And, and the, the ships will pull up beside each other, and they're doing this while they're moving. You know, if they, if they all stood still, the waves, they just, they just slap into one another and be all dented and broken up. So they're underway. So the, the ship over here, the, the flat top, the Iwo Jima, they take a shotgun with a plug in it that has a line on it, and they shoot it across to the supply ship. And then the supply ship hooks it up to something, and then they, they pull a hose across, and then they pull this across. And the, sometimes they pull what they call a bosun's line, and a bosun's line has what they call a bosun's chair, and they send people across on it. And so we're getting our provisions, we're getting our fuel, we're getting our food, we're getting the store, the, what we need to stay at sea. And the, the little guy there, he's the one that keeps running back to the gas station. And then he comes back. Now it gets more exciting when all of a sudden we've got three in a row. This is really great because the supply ship in the middle here, he's, he's taking care of this aircraft carrier on his right and he's taking care of the, this destroyer on his left. And when you stand at the edge and you look down, I'll tell you the water coming between the ships, it looks like white water. You want to get your raft out or your surfboard or something. But this is all happening and, and the ships are moving along at 10 knots or so, you know, so they can control their steerage. And then from the air, that's what it looks like. I mean, this is incredible. And this is what the Paracletos does. The Paracletos, the great helper of God, he comes alongside of us in our journey, in our cruising, to be there for us, to give us the provision and the supply and the strength and the energy and everything that we need. Oh, come on, people. This is exciting. This is true Paracletos, someone who comes alongside to help. And here's what he helps. When we are weak, he makes us strong. When we are fearful, he gives us courage. When we are tempted, he comes to our aid. And we're ready to give up. He gives us strength. Wow. He's our helper. And Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, guys. I'm going to come to you. In fact, I'm going to ask the Father to give you a helper. You see, they didn't need that helper as long as Jesus was with them. Because as I said last week, at that moment in history, the only spirit-filled person on the planet was the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And as long as he was with them, everything was good. But he was going to go away. And he says, it's to your advantage that I go away because the helper cannot come unless I go away. And then as he goes away, the Holy Spirit is outpoured on the day of Pentecost and 120 men and women break out of that upper room and begin to proclaim the message of the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace into the city streets of Jerusalem. And then out of the middle of that, an old fisherman named Simon Peter, the one who denied Jesus just a few weeks earlier, all of a sudden is standing forth and preaching a message that 3,000 people respond to. And before that day is out, there are 3,120 people filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you follow on, after the man was healed at the temple gate called Beautiful, the preaching happened again, another 2,000. In just a little over a week, the church went from nada to 5,000 people. And all of a sudden, what we have is we have 5,000 people filled with the Holy Spirit that when they start moving about, they are taking with them the very Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ in their speaking and in their doing and their acting. And when they reach out and touch in His name. See, when Jesus was the only person on the planet filled with the Holy Spirit, when Jesus was on this earth, He could only be in one room at a time. But all of a sudden now, the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ and the person of the Holy Spirit goes forth in the life of every believer. And we're going to keep developing this theme because what it, did, what it does is, you know, the church's life and ministry is not just in the sanctuary on Sunday morning. That's where we come to, to gas up. That's where we come to gas up and be equipped. Why? So that when we leave this place every Sunday, in our home, in our school, on our jobs, in our labor, and in our leisure, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ is there because you're there and because I'm there. And we're going to talk about, you know, when the, when the disciples uh, first were filled with the Holy Spirit, I mean, we always want to talk about the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues and all this stuff, but God gave them uh, moral authority. He gave them provision. He gave them a whole lot more when he said, I'm going to give you power than just the ability to speak in tongues. He gave them the ability to make the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ known when we move into our community. I don't know if you've ever been around someone that, whew, I remember Reggie Kirkman. Met Reggie Kirkman the summer that I got saved. Reggie Kirkman was a big guy. He was a lineman for Bear Bryant's Crimson Tide at Alabama. And, and Reggie was about the size of this room. And I couldn't get enough of Reggie Kirkman. There was just something that oozed out of him. There was life that oozed out of Reggie. And there'd be people in the church and I would say, and, I, and we were in a Southern Baptist church at that time. They didn't talk much about the Holy Spirit, you know. They were kind of on this side where the upper room door got shut. And, and I'd say, oh, Reggie. And they go, Reggie's a fanatic. And that's what they'd say. I couldn't get enough of Reggie. He oozed something, and it was the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fruit of the Spirit just hung on him. 
And, and there, I, Reggie, what is it? Another man that, that just God used in my life in a great way is the old English evangelist Leonard Ravenhill. I have never been around a man. I mean, he was like Reggie. He, he oozed Jesus. And probably the most Christ-like man that I ever met in my whole life used to visit our house in Moab, Father Benedict Suing. He was the Catholic priest at the local Catholic church. And Benedict loved Jesus. And he, was, he had the gentlest, sweetest spirit, and I couldn't get enough of Benedict. Have you ever been around somebody like that? That there was just, there was something that drew, there was a magnetism, and, it, and the only thing you can say is, it was the Spirit of God. And wouldn't it be great if when we leave this place, Sunday after Sunday, that the arenas that we occupy, that the people that are around us sense some kind of something oozing from you as well? This is yes, and this is no. Okay? And now we'll get into this later on. One of the things that always concerned me when we were in the midst of Pentecost and charismatic circles is 99 and 44% 100% of the time when the spiritual gifts were in operation, it was when the believers were all gathered together. What ended up happening is those things became toys for the redeemed to entertain themselves with rather than what Jesus says, the Spirit is going to be out poured on you and you will have power to do what? Power to... Come on, speak up. I heard it. To be a witness. To be a witness. Out there. The gifts of the Holy Spirit operating in the lives of the believer ought to be happening out there. As a calling card, as a drawing card, that the Lord Jesus Christ is still alive and well and on planet Earth through the person of His Holy Spirit, and He's occupying this planet still in the likes of you and me. And when we bust out into the parking lot every Sunday, there ought to be something moving into the streets of His presence. And we're going to be talking more about that. I just I get ahead of myself here just a little bit. But this is, that, this is that, that helper that comes along, that assists me, that fills me, that empowers me, that enables me. I am the poor in spirit. And I can do nothing without him. But the Apostle Paul took that statement where Jesus says, without me you can do nothing. Then he flipped it on its head. And what did Paul say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, they're the same statement. Jesus just quoted it in the negative. You can do nothing without me. Paul quoted it in the positive. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. They're the same statement. They're the same statement. And Jesus said he would ask his father for a helper to come and fill you and walk with you and be at your side, making you strong when you are weak and giving you courage when you're afraid and coming to your aid when you're tempted and giving you strength when you're ready to give up. Again, I told you I'd get ahead of myself. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I can do all things. They're identical statements. How much can I do? Really. 
Anybody want to gander a guess what all means? <laughs> my brothers and sisters, let me tip my hand just a little bit. I'll be tipping it some more in a couple of weeks. Here's what I believe with all my heart. I believe that when Jesus birthed the church on the day of Pentecost and filled it with his spirit, his intention was to leave behind an entity that would represent him in his absence as fully as he represented himself when he was here in his presence. And like I said, all of a sudden, instead of one man doing it, we've got 5,000 filled. And as they begin to move across the land, we get statements like, you know who's here in the town? Those guys who turned the world upside down. How did they do it? They were men of no reputation. They didn't have two nickels to rub together. And they turned the world upside down. And it was by the power. I love it when the Apostle Paul, was praying, I was praying with Mick tonight, and the Apostle Paul in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, he said, when I was first with you, it wasn't in demonstration of great words and eloquence. He said, I was shaking, my knees were knocking together, and anything that happened in that place was because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul was stammering and stuttering, and, and later on in one of the letters, somebody says, you know, his letters are pretty weighty, but he's sure not very impressive in person. That's what they wrote about the Apostle Paul. They said, man, can he write a letter? But have you ever seen the guy in person? <laughs> it was the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the same Spirit that filled the Lord Jesus on the day he was baptized by John. The same Spirit that breathed life into his cold, dead body in a tomb outside of Jerusalem three days after his crucifixion. And the spirit that lives in you and me now as born-again believers in Christ is the same spirit. We used to sing a song in the Assembly of God Church in North Carolina. If the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwell in you, he will quicken your mortal body. He will come and be your helper. And, you know, the only difference is the degree of surrender or obedience that's what there, there's there's no magic lamp to rub here it's just you get close to Jesus he's the giver of all gifts anybody in here ever been in love anybody anybody still in love have you ever bought her a gift John a couple times okay good well, Jesus is our spiritual lover. When we get close, he also gives gifts. Annie Herring, who was the lead singer of the second chapter of Acts, she said one time, because she's a tremendous songwriter, you've probably heard her songs sung by her and other people, and, and she said, you know, when a husband and wife get intimate, they have babies. When God and I get intimate, he gives me songs. And when God and I get intimate, he gives me sermons. What do you get when you get intimate with him? I'll tell you what, you fall in love with him. The giver of gifts is going to show up with gifts. 
for you, not to make you look good, but to make him look good in this dark and fallen world in which we're living today. It desperately needs to see him again. And you know what? You are plan A. Because God doesn't have a plan B. It's through His church. It's through His church. But friends, I want to say this. The Holy Spirit is no gate crasher. What do I mean by that? He will only help where He is welcomed. He does not crash the spiritual parties. Just like Oswald said, he uh, he tells us what we ought to do, but then he doesn't put us in a half Nelson to make us do it. The obedience that comes out of us is because we've fallen in love with him. He's no gate crasher. He will not force his will upon you. Remember, He's the gentle dove. I love this picture because the dove is a powerful, powerful bird in, in stamina and in flight. It can fly a long way and it can fly for a long time. But the dove is the gentlest of all birds and he's easily wounded. He's easily grieved. We talked about that last week. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. I have been in services where the presence of the Lord was so thick you could cut it with a knife. And then somebody did something harebrained and it was like somebody stuck the hose of a vacuum in the window and it went... <laughs> and that sweetness was gone because he had been grieved. He had been grieved. Oh, he is that, that strong, powerful Paracletos. But if we grieve him, if we grieve him, you see, though the power of heaven accompanies him, he can be turned back and he can be grieved. How? By an attitude, by a word, by an action that is unlike Jesus. I remember a few years ago, I had a family in my office as I was pastoring the church here and things were kind of, you know, everything was wrapping up around the axle of life for them. And they came into my office and were sitting there talking and they just can't figure out why God isn't getting his act together and doing for them what he ought to be doing for them. Well, the longer we got to talk, I I found out that they had a teenage son, junior or senior in high school, and he had a girlfriend that he was sleeping with. And guess what? They moved her into the house. And they were letting him sleep with his girlfriend in their house, this Christian home. And they're wondering where the blessing went. And I said, your life in Christ is not like a checkerboard where you can have all of these squares in line, but this one over here, you say, that's not your square, Lord. I'll take care of that one. And you cut off the whole nine yards. 
But they were so afraid of their son, they wouldn't dare tell him he couldn't sleep with his girlfriend at their house anymore. But you know what they sacrificed? The presence of God. And my friends, there's been times in my life along the way too where I've done things and I've had attitudes and I needed some adjustment in my own life to where I felt that sweet Paracletos move away and I could hear him cooing as he went. Ooh. You ever listen to the morning doves? I could hear him crying. And it was only through a confession and repentance and, and coming back in and asking him to forgive me that the dove came back. Oh, he'll do incredible things for you and for the church. But he's also easily wounded. He's easily grieved. Oh, I gotta figure out how to tie this one up. I guess I'll just read what I have here and you can deal with it. <laughs> when we, and I'm saying we, okay, because. If I point my finger, there's three pointing back at me. We, when we think of the wonderful work that the Holy Spirit can do, when we think of the gift of his empowering presence, why would we willfully hold on to anything that would wound him? And I'm here to say, I have and probably will again. But at this point in my life, I recognize it quicker than I've ever recognized it in my life. I know when he's there and I know when he's not. Now, Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. St. John of the Cross. Oh, boy, what a man of God. He talked about the dark night of the soul. And he says, God has promised never to leave us or forsake us, but there are times that he withdraws the consciousness of his presence. <laughs> you, ever, you, ever had, you ever had a day like that? <laughs> Where are you, Lord? Yoo-hoo! <laughs> Read the Psalms. David had plenty of them. And there was always some confession and repentance and a returning that turned the lights back on and filled the heart once again to overflowing. You see, the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit because they do not know Jesus. He can only be received by those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And to the degree that one will die to self, he becomes the helper of all helpers. Thanks for listening to this part of the class. We'll keep posting each session as they're available. We hope God uses them to grow your relationship with Him, and we hope to see you soon.